Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Keen. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Such an honor to have you. Oh, thank you, Marwa. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you first, how you'd like to define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you? Well, I'm a roboticist and I'm a professor at UC Berkeley. I'm also an artist. I do, I've, been, I've been doing art installations for 30 years and have done them in a number of galleries and museums around the world. And I'm very interested in a variety of topics, but almost always the thing that they all have in common is uh, some connection to robots and automation. So I guess I'll ask you in that case, when we speak about the design process, or for example, you, you, you have been working on the design of the gripper. So what kind of problems when you speak about, because you have been in academia and also in, in, in the other side of maybe startup and also industry. So I'm curious about how do you see the approach of asking the right question and the problems and how we can design the right choices, for example, the river design for a certain yeah, situation or application? Okay, well, that's a great question because it's something I've been thinking about for 35 years or so. And I do think that the, the choice of, of, of the gripper is, is super important that it's surprising to me how, how much in general that's, that's sort of minimized. In other words, people will, we have so much papers published about grasping, but not so much attention to the, to the specifics of the, of the gripper, although that's changing. And so there are some interesting studies now trying to really find the right gripping devices. Now, in, in practice, we, I've always been a big fan of the parallel jaw gripper. And that is the very simple workhorse, just two jaws that open and close. And the, the advantage is it's got one degree of freedom. It's very lightweight and very, re, in a sense, reliable. I call it the workhorse of, the, of end effectors. So when you watch the old movies, robots generally have those simple grippers. Now you can do a lot with those. The, 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 there's two examples. One is in, if you look at surgical robots today, they, if you look at intuitive and you watch those videos, and doctors are able to do incredible complicated manipulation with just two parallel jaw grippers, right? And the, the trick of course, is that they're, they're compensating with huge amount of, of perception and, and manipulability based on the human, right? Which is, but, but it's a, it's a, it's a proof of concept that simple, end effectors can actually do complex tasks. The other example I like to always give is, uh, is chopsticks. That uh, if you think about it, they're very simple, um, but you can pick up, you can learn to pick up very complicated things, especially deformable and slippery objects. So those are, those are proofs that you can do things with, um, with simple gripper. Now, I, I, I understand that many people are interested in the, in the hand and hand-like uh, grippers, and so there's a number of those out there with five fingers um, or multiple fingers, and I think that's really interesting. But in some sense, I feel like that's getting ahead of the of of, of a, we're getting ahead of ourselves doing that because we want to understand the simple grippers first and then expand into more complex. So 
in some sense, and I, I understand humans, obviously, and many animals have evolved very complex manipulators, but um, but it's that's over millions of years of evolution. So for roboticists, we're trying to understand and catch up, essentially, and it's a it's a it's a it's, it's non-trivial. The one thing I want to mention is that, in, and this comes back to your earlier question about putting things into practice, was that we we have been working on this project involving grasping with the parallel jaw gripper, the dexterity network, for a number of years, and then we 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 got some interest from industry, and they asked, well, can it work with a suction cup? And that was very interesting because. It's true that most industrial applications use suction cups. And so, you know, I remember saying, you know, sitting back and talking, thinking about that for a while and realizing that we could take the same framework for that we'd use for parallel, parallel jaw grippers and apply it to suction cups. And so you went from a, a, a two point contact to a single point contact. And so that's even going further in the, down this uh, this this path towards simplicity. And it's it's very interesting because that there was remarkably little research on this at the time um, to to study or build models of suction cups. So we 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 actually spent a summer developing a, our own models, both of the suction cup seal and the wrench mechanics that go with it. And then basically building that into the same framework, and that was what allowed us to be able to pick things up with suction cups, or to learn how to pick things up with suction cups. And so that to me is very interesting, and that's actually turned out to be very effective in the company, because that's what we're using now. No grippers, only suction. Mm -hmm. Great. That's a great point. But I just ask you firstly, what could be the missing piece of understanding of, since you mentioned sometimes, we don't fully understand how it works, or of course, it takes a lot of time to understand how it's evolving in even human or animals. And why do you see in what if we go academia, why have to go to the complex design? And uh, yeah, what is what is the motivation behind that? If we want to go for a simple one and deeply understand how it works, why we should we we have to go for maybe designing beyond what we have it really in evolution? Maybe weird design, I don't know. But why do you see the motivation behind that as well? The idea of pushing in a certain direction. Right. No, that's a great question. So one of the things is that, you know, certainly we don't have to copy evolution. And the, the, the best example, as everyone knows, is the uh, is for, for, for flying, right? We, we, we've tried for many years to have flapping machines that were like uh, birds. And then we, we learned that actually there's a fundamental principle that with the rigid wing was actually much more uh, energy efficient and reliable. So that is, I think, a perfect illustration of where for robotics that it may turn out that a much simpler design is actually much more, much more effective than, than the one that, that's bio-inspired, if you will. Now, I'm always in favor of, of simplifying problems. And my students will, will, will tell you, you know, I'm always thinking, let's try it in the plane first and try and imagine a planar version of this before you get into the 3D. Or let's try to imagine it with no friction. And then if we can figure that out, then we'll add friction. Or any of those, um, those aspects, it's just my instinct that it's, it's, it's much cleaner if you can simplify a problem, try and get it down to its, its basic elements. And that way you can get a, you get a, a, your, your, your hands around the problem and start to 
analyze it. You can often visualize it more clearly if it's in two dimensions. Uh, for example, I often start with polygonal objects. And then we say, okay, or circular objects, right? That's say everything's a circle. So now we're going to try and manipulate disks, all right? Then once we can do that, then we'll start to look at, at, at polygons, or right? And two, they're two dimensional. And then we start thinking about three dimensions. But every one of those steps is kind of taken carefully where we, we build up intuition, we build up some models at the, at the, in the more simple version before we move into the more complex. Great. So maybe I'm curious about what could other maybe, I don't know, functionality or you think maybe still we don't focus so much more in a robotic field. For example, I don't know how to see redundancy design when it comes to Gripper. How do you see that concept of redundancy or yeah, if there's damage happening on one of these fingers, it could be failure. I don't know what kind of situation scenario you consider redundancy and the failure for, for example, if we speak about the parallel tool, for example, like. Well, it's, that's great um, issue because I think redundancy in, and, and, and failure, recovery from failure are very crucial issues for roboticists. When you are looking at an environment like self-driving cars, there's, there's a very low tolerance for failure. Right. You can't you really can't fail. It's if you if you if you have a failure and you drive off a cliff, you know, it's catastrophic. And the same in, in many other applications. You you would hit a, a pedestrian. We know these these cases, right? So you, you really can't afford to fail. And this is very different than a lot of manipulation, industrial manipulation. So in warehouses, your the failure mode is that you drop a part. And that's not so terrible. In fact, humans do it all the time. And so they have a tolerance built in for, 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 for dropping objects. And it's, um, it's, it's allowable. So that makes the problem much easier because now you have to get up to, let's say 90, 95, 98% success. And that's acceptable because at the end of the day, there'll be some objects that are lying, packages or products lying around on the floor, but if someone, and it's usually a human, will come around and just pick those up. So it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Another example I'd like to use is uh, making, bed making. So uh, we've been studying this a little bit because it's a, it's a nice task. It's, uh, it's something that, that humans don't like doing, most humans. Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually an important task because it, it usually, you know, it's, it, it can be demoralizing if you get into bed day after day without the bed being made. You know what I'm talking about. It just feels nice to get into when, having your bed made and getting in at night. It's nice just psychologically. And um, so especially for senior citizens, right, where, you know, they could be at home alone. And it's actually difficult to make the bed because you have to bend over, right? And, so we've been looking at having a robot, home robot, be able to do that. And the nice thing about it is, it, like like the warehouse, it's it's fault tolerant. So you can you don't have to make the bed perfectly. You know, we're not talking about um, a hotel, right, where the bed has to be just so. At home, as long as you basically cover uh, a large fraction of the of the bottom sheet with the blanket, it's good. You know, and you can get up to 90 percent. You're good. So this is what I'm getting at is that you have, if, if we, I look at this fault tolerance in the task. So if it's, if it's very, if it's intolerant, then it's, it's particularly challenging for the foreseeable future.
but I'm looking for tasks where there's some tolerance. And another factor is in time tolerance. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, of tasks are very time critical. Driving is, again, you, you have to make a decision in split second. And in, 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 in fact, that's true for, let's say, running or walking. Um, locomotion. There's a very time critical because you'll lose balance and fall over. But in these tasks that we're talking about um, for, for grasping, it, it is important. Time is important for industry. But let's say for the bed, bed making, it doesn't matter that it's done right away. In fact, you could probably take an hour the robot can spend making your bed. And you're not you're not really paying attention. So it's fine to take your time. Like I'm also interested in cleaning at home decluttering the floor. Again, not time critical and highly fault tolerant because you can you can leave something on the floor or drop it, whatever. It's not the end of the world. So those are those this is an interesting area, I think, is to start to think about the problems that where we have this tolerance in time and success that allow us to 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 really make progress. Great. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to ask you in that case, what could be a trade-off when we speak about the design process? What could be the trade-off do you believe that we can scale robotics, we can't get over it, or we can't avoid this trade-off? Do you have any kind of thought about the trade-off we have and we can't avoid it? You mean, well, I mean, in terms of trade-offs in general, what, what, what kind of trade-offs we have to make? Well, it's, it's the biggest one is cost. And it's very tricky to, I mean, you can, you can always apply more cost. You can get a higher, higher precision manipulation. You can have more sensing, higher quality, faster um, sensing by putting more cameras. And there's a cost, there's a cost to these things, both in terms of, 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 uh, of price dollars um, to put in all the sensors, but the other cost that, many don't realize is the cost of additive noise. So if you imagine, well, I, I want to really be able to see my environment and I'm going to be doing assembly. And the, as soon as I pick up the first part, my, my gripper is obscuring, obstructing the, my vision of the object. So now I want to insert that part into another part, but I can't see where I'm going. So one of the ideas is, well, just add more sensors, just put, put a bunch of cameras in the environment so you can have six or eight or 10 cameras. But the problem is as soon as you add more sensor devices, and this is a point that my advisor, Matt Mason made many years ago, you also, every new device introduces a new source of, of error and noise. So, and that is a problem because in practice, you have to calibrate all these devices and you have to filter. And oftentimes you get contradictory information from these. So how do you resolve that? And there's also failure mode. So one camera goes down and you're, now your system is, right, is, is vulnerable, has more failure points. So these are trade-offs. And I think that, again, I'm always in favor of simplicity. It comes back to in the problem, in the robot, in the environment. So we can try to, try to keep things simple and keep the price down and make the, the control problem manageable. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I think that's bringing me to, I think, what you tried to say, I think, when we speak about the embedded intelligence or cognition, whatever we call it here, that when you see that relation in robotics, that the body, the morphology, the robots and the brain side, how do you see this correlation? Do you think we have to list more which side, currently speaking? And you mentioned examples of failure and 
do you believe that robot we have imagining sorry, the brain has damaged the controller or maybe the body side, how they can adapt to each other uh, if we speak about home environment or uncertain environment? I don't know how this is this problem uh, when you speak about it in robotics. Right, well, I think that the, the best tools that we have for dealing with uncertainty, which is very inherent in, in robotics, is, is learning, is, is being able to now look at examples and learn from examples. And there, the challenge is you need a fairly large number of examples to be able to learn a sufficiently reliable policy. And so one, one thing that you can do is have humans demonstrate, uh, let's say a, a task, like an assembly task or bed making. But again, because you need a large number of examples, you know, it could be hundreds or thousands of, of demonstrations that could be just, you know, impractical to do that. The idea that I'm excited about is that we can use simulation to generate many examples very quickly. And the challenge, of course, is the, that the simulation is, is never accurate to physical reality. There's, there's a variety of reasons for that, and it has to do with, with our, our, our limitations of our simulation, but also inherently, the world is somewhat unpredictable and, and, and non-deterministic. Non so the classic case is, you know, flipping a coin or, um, throwing the dice, right? The minute changes in the environment will cause very different outcomes. So um, in, in some sense, we have to build the stochastics into the simulator. And so that, you know, it's non-deterministic like the world is. And so if you do that though, you can start to, and, I, and this is where I, I see a lot of potential and progress, is that we're getting more and more sophisticated simulations and simulators. It's because of computation and and new models that are coming out, but you can you can now run lots of simulations and then generate lots of examples, and then that allows the learning system to be able to learn a policy. the The challenge is then transferring it back into the real world, the sim to real transition, and that's where I think we again can come back to stochastics. So if you can inject noise. And, and it's, this is sometimes called domain adaptation. But I think the key of, is that it's not just throwing random uniform noise at the, um, at the simulation, but actually structured noise that is matched to the kind of noise we see in reality. So this is really at the core of our DexNet system was we, we injected noise into the, into the examples that were all generated in simulation but we the noise was tuned to the properties of the sensors and the manipulators. Mm -hmm. So that's why we got realistic noise that then the system worked reliably in the physical world. Mm -hmm. That's what, that, yeah, but I'm curious to in the case when it comes to computation. I think in some robotics we speak about how we can use list sensor and that maybe sometimes could be beneficial to use list sensor. And um, yeah, sometimes also we speak about how we can design robot list depending on the feedback and uh, more predictive. So how do you see that? Do you believe that's something we have to go for that or we still not there yet so that we can use list sensing and uh, reduce the computation or there is no way around it and we have to go for 
sometimes it's expensive computation. Of course, there's a way to reduce it, but yeah, I'm curious about your thought about that. Right. Well, it's it's years ago we we started looking at very very simple sensors, and we were looking at binary sensors like light beams, and the idea was if you just put a light beam strategically in the environment, right? And all it is is it's, it's and this is very low cost and very reliable that if you pass through the light beam, it breaks the light beam. And we showed that you could actually, by arranging these light beams, you could you could actually determine the orientation of parts as they were coming down, say, an assembly line. Or you could position um, a gripper if you had a light beam between the two jaws. But that would allow you to very, very accurately know when you were uh, close to the object. So, and then again, it's just binary. It's one bit of information. So I think you're you're right. One of the other areas is a lot of what's done now is in in deep learning is that the camera image is 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 subsampled. So it's a lower resolution. So you have these high resolution cameras. They might be 4K camera, but then you're 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 basically averaging to reduce the input to the to the to the network down to maybe um, um, even a 16 by 16 image, right? So you've really reduced it, the uh, the the the, the um, complexity of the input. An area that I think is also interesting is in depth sensing, because if you compare it to RGB, you have there you have three channels. In depth, you only have one. Now that is often very useful channel for manipulation because you really care, you don't care about the colors of the objects. In fact, that's a distraction, right? You want the geometry, the, the shape of things and their locations. So that's that's been interesting for us. We've been using depth and, and in many cases, just only depth as an input signal. And that, that tends to give a slight advantage for manipulation. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. But just ask you, what could be um something you thought should work in a certain way. When you try to try to design, for example, I don't know if in the gripper having or any other project you have, you have counterintuitive or surprising results. And you didn't expect, maybe in the modeling simulation, you expect a certain result, but at this moment was, I didn't expect that. This is counterintuitive to what I thought. Oh, I have plenty of stuff. Well, the, the, the most recent example of that, and, and you're, you're absolutely right, that's what one of the things that makes research so fun is when things surprise you. They don't work out as you expect it. And, and by the way, it's a very important point I try to make with students is always be alert to that. If you, if you look at your, your experiments as something that's just gonna ver verify your, your hypothesis, that's not a good attitude. It should always be, how is this experiment, I wanna use this experiment to evaluate my hypothesis, meaning that I have a very open mind about whether the hypothesis is correct or not. And you should be perfectly ready to accept that it's false. And in fact, maybe something else entirely is, is happening. So, and in my artwork, by the way, this is very common that we start out with one intention to build an art installation with one intention in mind, and we end up with something very different because we've learned something along the way and it changes. So I try to bring that same spirit into research. And here's an example recently was that we've been working with a surgical robot, surgical assist robot. And we have a, a version of the Da Vinci, the DVRK in the lab. And for years now, we've been struggling with that robot because it's very, it's, it's not repeatable, it's imprecise. So it's, 
you know, and the errors are on the order of, of, of several millimeters, five, up to five millimeters. And as you can imagine, if you're trying to do an, something with five millimeter error, it's very hard to get anything to, to, to do anything. So I, 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 my, my hypothesis, my strong um, assumption was that that was due to the cabling and that it's just inherent because cables are very hard to model and very unpredictable. So I was able to hire a, an engineer from Korea, Minho Huang, and he is very, very astute engineer, really careful. He went in and, and started to study this machine and really do a lot of measurements and experiments. And he found that actually the, the, the cables were, um, were actually predictable, the, the errors in the cable, if you knew the velocity of the robot. In other words, by just taking in the, in fact, it was only the sign of the velocity. In other words, which direction is it coming from? Then if you factored that in, then you could predict the, the outcome, the, 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 you could compensate for these small errors very, very effectively. And that surprised me. I was just, I was surprised that there was such a strong signal that was buried in what I saw as noise. And he found that signal. And then we were able, he was able to build a, a system that was highly, highly reliable, highly repeatable using this, this same hardware. And that was one of those cases where I just wouldn't, I just didn't think it was possible. And when I saw it, it's, it's, it's so exciting because now he very recently, he's able to, to achieve uh, the ability to do a, a task that surgeons train on, which is to move pegs called the peg transfer task in the fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery. And this is well-defined, not something that we created, but it was, it's defined in, in the field of surgery. And so we, we studied that task and we started to replicate it with the robot, so fully autonomous. And we're able to get this to perform at the accuracy on par with the human surgeon. So in other words, of 120 trials, it gets 120 trials correct. And that is remarkable, by the way, when you watch it, you just see it's, it, you know, it just does this and there's no, it doesn't drop it, doesn't make a mistake. And it's a fairly complex manipulation. But what's also interesting is we've been pushing on now getting it fast. And so we have a very new result that just came out that shows that we can do this faster than, uh, than a human, faster than a trained surgeon. Not only by a small margin, but it's but in terms of the the variance and the the, uh, the 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 average speed, we were able to to exceed that of a surgeon. So we call that superhuman performance. And I'm really interested in in this, with, namely, where can we do something that not only is on par with the human amazing ability, the human dexterity, but also can slightly improve on it, can be actually exceed human skills. So this was a case I was very surprised. I did not think we'd be able to get there. And, um, and I was very, very pleasantly surprised in this case. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think I would like to stop at the point you mentioned about at the beginning that, about the result you get. And I think that's something most of the time the podcast will speak about the pressure that you have to publish positive results, always have to be positive. Mm -hmm. And that's clear. Yeah, yeah, you have to deliver a great result and has to be all positive. And that's create a, maybe a pressure of the researcher that you have to have to fit the result with what you expected. And that's create a problem. And we can 
I don't know, it's how we can avoid this problem. As you mentioned, yeah, sometimes it takes a lot of time to make sure the results are reproducible and many factors we have to consider, but because of a pressure, we have to push. And yeah, I don't know, how, how do you think about that? It is a problem, you're absolutely right. So we, as a field, and I think this is true of science and engineering in general, it tends to be more excited and, and open to positive results than negative results. But negative results are very important because they teach you something that didn't work. And the, it, if, you, if you can say that conclusively, that's actually incredibly valuable to publish because it, it saves people time. And, and I'm always, I like it when, when people explain what doesn't work. In fact, we, we've been um, encouraging, I encourage my students, but um, this came out of the, the, the wafer conference the workshop on algorithmic foundations of robotics. A few years ago, we started adding a, a new requirement that every paper had to include a dirty laundry slide at the end. And that was where you reveal and, and you, you, you admit, where is the limitation of, the, of your work? And where can it be improved? And that's gotten to be a, a sort of uh, tradition. And I really like it. In fact, all my students in, at ICRA next week will be including dirty laundry slides in their talk. And it's it's partly it's because I want to say, if you're getting the paper published, wonderful, but in, don't forget to show where is it limited? What is the, what is the dirty laundry? <laughs> and, uh, and don't be ashamed of it because it's, it's, it's perfectly reasonable. Every project, any project has some dirty laundry, right? Has something. Don't sweep that under, hide that because it's so important because first of all, it tells you where there's opportunities to improve. So anyone watching your paper or listening to your paper will say, ah, okay, I see where I can take that and improve that work because I can, I can make that, I can fix that piece of dirty laundry, right? So you wanna make those explicit. So to your point, I think as a field, it's really important for us to, to, to change our bias toward accepting systems that are not perfect that are that have failure modes and really studying those failure modes carefully so another thing we've been doing in the lab is when systems fail we don't just you know try and average that out and say okay well it succeeded you know x amount of time but i'm always asking tell me about the failures what exactly happened how did it fail and so we've been reporting on failure modes so we'll break it down. It failed in these different four different ways. And here is a fraction of times it failed in each way. And then that really helps us understand of what's going on, right? Certain of those failure modes are we can't fix, but others we can address. And so that process that really talking about failures in a very clear and open way is a great, great positive step for, for, for students, for everybody as researchers. So I think that's important. Now, the one last thing I want to say, Marwa, for, for anyone listening is that as, as, as reviewers of papers, we need to be a lot more generous than we are. And I have to tell you, I've been, I read a lot of reviews because when I was, I was editor in chief of the Transactions on Automation Sciences, you know, I'd see hundreds of reviews a week. And what, what was so interesting to me was that younger generation, junior researchers are often very, very harsh reviewers. Grad students are the worst. <laughs> they, are, they will slice and dice a paper and just rip it to shreds and you know, recommend strong reject, 
I mean, I, and I'll look at the same paper and I would say, well, I would say borderline accept. <laughs> and so the difference is that we, you, for years and years, I've learned to be much more accepting and forgiving of the errors, um, the mistakes that, that I see a paper and I say, okay, I, I see where the good pieces of this are, right? What are the positive elements? Rather than just trying to, to, to focus on its weakness, because to your point about failure modes and, and, and negative results, the weaknesses are ex inevitable, right? I, I'd much rather see a paper who carefully talks about the failures and I'll never penalize an author for that. In fact, I reward them. But I, but I, I, you know, I think that our field, a lot of times a paper gets rejected because you've, you've admitted why it doesn't work and the reviewer pounces on that. And then basically, you know, in the review says, well, it doesn't work because of this, right? And now you feel like, oh, I, I, I was, I shouldn't have admitted that. But that's the wrong, you know, completely the wrong message to send to authors. So to your point, I think this is super important. And I, I hope that we, we do as a field, we evolve in a positive way to be accepting and constructive of the, the range of results that, that, that authors submit. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Maybe a quick question on that because I think maybe people are curious about that. Maybe about the, the post itself. Do you think maybe imagine something beyond the reviewing process? Because we speak sometimes we receive invitation to review something and you don't have solid expertise. Do you believe that we have to shift from the review process to something, I don't know, different? Do you think about that or do you believe that maybe we can use what we have and maybe tweak it a little bit to be, to be better? And yeah, I don't know what you think about that. Well, I do have some, some strong feeling about, the, about the, the publication process, if I can share that with you. So I, I'm a very, very big fan of what, what I, what's called evolutionary research. So I think it's really the, the best thing to do is to publish a, a early work when it's still in progress, put it out there and get feedback on it. Partly there's two reasons. One is that the process of writing up experiments and, a, and, a, and, and research is in its own sense, very constructive to your own thinking about how the research goes. So we start writing papers very early in, in projects in my lab. So students, I encourage them, start, start write it up. Now that means you have to start thinking about the related work section and what are your, what's your problem definition? What are your assumptions, right? How are you framing this? How does it, how, now what are your, how are your experiments gonna be run? And you start looking at the data and all putting it together and formalizing it. Well, that is very helpful because as you're doing it, you start to catch gaps and mistakes and you start, right? And you can, by communicating it, you help uh, shape the, the work and then you submit it. Now, at that point, you've actually made a lot of progress and you, you, I, we generally, I ask them to continue working on the paper. Don't stop and sit now and wait for the review because you can always make it better. You race to get to the deadline. So now the deadline is passed, keep working, keep the momentum. So keep working. And then when the reviews come in, whether they're positive or negative, you still have an advanced, you're, you've advanced your project. But then after the reviews, if they're positive or the negative, we keep, we keep refining. And if it's positive, then we have new results. We keep advancing it. And then the, the, the paper that gets submitted, the final version is much better, dramatically better than the paper that was submitted. Now, but here's where it, it, I, I push even further because now the paper, you now have another couple of months until the conference actually occurs. Keep working on it. 
So now I want to see, you know, improve it again and get those results even better. So when you present it, you'll even be a better result, a better paper. And then after the conference is over, keep working on it because then you can evolve this into a journal paper. So keep working because now you can expand it. You have a lot more better understanding. So don't stop and switch gears into something new. Keep pushing it, keep evolving that direction. And that evolutionary model is very interesting because that's an old model of, um, of research that you generally start with the conference and then you go to the journal, et cetera. I think that's still important. And, and you know, in today, there's a lot of students who don't, don't do that. They, they just publish it in an archive or something and then move on. I mean, that's fairly common. And I think that's a mistake because the, the process of all these steps we're talking about, get the results and the ideas more refined, more, 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 more valuable to the research community. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, everyone. I think very important. So since we're close to the end, I have a few questions. First of all, what's your aspiration when it comes to robotics? Um, maybe, I don't know what kind of also crazy idea you have in mind when it comes to robotics, you think about it. Yeah, I think in some way, my, my, the, the thing I've, I, I've been trying to do it for, for 35 years is be able to have a robot be able to pick things up mm -hmm. reliably. And I've only recently realized that Part of the reason I think I went into this field was because I, 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 I was, I still am very clumsy. So when I was a kid, I couldn't play any sports. Student, anyone threw, a, threw any kind of ball at me, I would drop it immediately. Uh, it was a problem. And I, I think unconsciously, I went into a field where I could study grasping to try and figure out how, to, how it works. So this is still a hard problem. And I think I would love to see that progress being made. And I've seen it in the last, in the last decade, in, in the last few years, is now becoming closer to being solved. Not perfectly, as we mentioned earlier, but there's been a lot of progress. And that, that has real applications for, for industry right now for e-commerce because there's so much demand for, for orders and, and package handling. And so in the, the company and Ambi Robotics, we've really seen how they can put the ideas from research into practice. And I see we're, we're doing this for customers now and helping them manage real products. So it's incredibly um, rewarding to, to, to see that. And I would love to see that trend continue to really see systems in operation and, and go to sleep knowing that somewhere there's a robot um, using some of our ideas in its uh in its operation that for me would be the greatest um achievement the you know in the field i think there's you know i've also seen is that how inspiring this field is for the generation of students and and that's really been true over over the last 35 years that it's still inspiring for students of all backgrounds and all all, all especially um, women underrepresented students Everyone is interested in robots to some degree. It's a very powerful um, metaphor. And it, it, that's because of its intersections with culture and imagination. And so I think that I, I, I love the idea of the field becoming bigger, broader, and more diverse. Mm -hmm. Great. That's profound. So I'm curious to ask you on this journey, do you have any moment of doubt when you come to design something or new ideas and how you avoid our new? overcome this feeling of doubt or sometimes you have a new idea and you're not sure whether it will be transformed in a good way. 
Mm. I don't know if you have any moment like that. And sometimes we have this moment of research doubt. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, that's, that's, that is actually the most important thing is you should always be doubtful. It's not just a moment. That should be a way of life. <laughs> what I mean by that is you, you should bring a skepticism to your own thinking and to the and, and, and things you see, which is you just want to have a, 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 a critical stance. Why is this this way? Why? Why? Why do we have this assumption? Why? You know, why? Why? Why does everyone think this way? Right. And so that that doubt is very, very constructive. I think it's, you know, it's the basis of the scientific method, as you know, with, uh, with Descartes, right? Um, the dubitas, the, the, the ability to, 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 to be skeptical and to question. That's, that was very different than the church, which was, you know, the, 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 the church did not, there was no room for doubt there. You had to have conviction. But in, in science, it was all about doubt everything was going to be doubted. And so you're constantly questioning every aspect that so doubt is very essential. And I think it's also true for, for, for creativity, because if you find yourself starting to be, you know, in a sense, you know, very confidently positive about something, right, where you don't have doubt, then you find yourself kind of getting, getting into a rut, getting defensive, right? You, you've, you've, you've already, closed your mind to some degree and now you're starting to push your agenda without being open to the limitations of the agenda and so i think you got to keep you got to be comfortable with doubt you have to be you have to embrace it and and be open it's not a negative it doesn't say that you're you know you're a bad person or you've made a mistake it's that you've you've learned something so i always open to 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 being wrong <laughs> I, uh, my, my, my daughters know that they remind me of it all the time. Um, but it's, uh, you know, to say, I think it's a credible thing to say, you know, I always thought this, but it was actually the opposite. And that's, that's what I love to, I love about this field also is learning those things that you, you know, you assumed, but that, that you found out later were not, not necessarily true. That's really good advice as well. Yeah. I don't know if any, any book inspired you. And you would, yeah, would like to recommend any book you have ever read. I mean, maybe inspiring. Oh, um, books. Yeah, I've actually just um, did a, a, set, a set of book recommendations for a uh, for something called Fable, and it was a set of books for that are related to artificial intelligence more broadly, and and robotics. But there there are books that like Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan which is a novel that came out last year. There's a new one that just came out, which is Clara and the Sun um, by Ishiguru, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, it's about a robot. And there's a wonderful book called Galatea 2.2 by uh, Powell. Where is it on my, I have it on my, on my shelf here. Galatea by Richard Powers. And <clears throat> what I'm really interested in this whole genre of, of books and, and movies that are really around what, what you might call the Pygmalion or Frankenstein theme. Mm -hmm. And it's rich, rich field there, subfield of uh, category of books and movies that explore this. And I'm really interested in how people and cultures approach the question of an artificial being. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, yeah. 
lastly, I'm curious if there's any advice you have received and would like changing. I don't know, maybe a new career outside of the field. Any advice you believe was maybe stick to mind and was life changing? Uh, well, actually, I was asked to give a a talk to a, a group of, um, of grad students at, at um, RSS, at the Pioneers. And I wrote a small set of uh, advice that was uh, what I called advuncular advice, which is like your uncle would give you. I guess I'm getting a little old. When you start to dispense advice, that's a sign that you're, uh, you're getting up there in age. So um, that's online on my website, and uh, it, if you if you go to it, you'll find uh, this avuncular advice from A to Z, I think it was. So there's a lot of advice there. Uh, I, I I have to say uh, I was recently invited by a colleague to do a podcast where he said I'm I'm pairing up the uh, senior uh, experienced roboticists with younger. Uh, you know, energetic, uh, creative, up-and-coming roboticists, and would you participate? And I said, well, you know, that depends. I mean, which senior roboticist do you want to pair me up with? And you know, he laughed because I, I, that's how I think of myself. I, I speak of myself as still learning and very, and, and, and very much, you know, I, 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 part of that younger generation, I, I identify with and and I know that's less and less true every year, <laughs> but but that's the the mentality. I think that to be a beginner, to be always coachable, these are the, the things that are most important, and and I really think that are that are important for so many different facets of our lives. That's really beautiful. Uh, I think that's advice for me and others as well to keep that mentality. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say. Um, if you have any final words you'd like to say. No, but thank you very much for putting this together. I was. I, I've been going on bike rides in my neighborhood here in California, and I, I pick out podcasts. And recently, I searched for robotics. Just was curious what would come up, and your your series came up. So it's really wonderful. So I I think it's a great thing you're doing it, and um, maybe we'll listen. I'll listen to this one on a future bike ride. <laughs> Thank you. It was such a pleasure, and yeah, it's honor to have you on the podcast once again. I deeply appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, really my pleasure. Thank you so much for organizing it, putting it together and asking such great questions. Thank you. Thank you.